scripture is from uh, Daniel 4, and it's verses 1 to 18. King, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw, and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached the heavens, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, as we've been doing, uh, the reading of God's word is an introduction to the chapter, but we are... As usual, we're looking at the whole chapter, all of Daniel 4 this morning. So we have a ton to cover, and we're going to move pretty quickly, um, but we still need to pray. So can I invite you to please bow your heads and hearts with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we look to you for the grace that we all need. Me to preach, and uh, 
my brothers and sisters to to hear, to lean in, to listen, to receive the word uh, meekly implanted in our hearts. Lord, you are a speaking God, and we trust you to speak to us through your word and to reveal to us the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning I'm going to do something a little different. Usually I kind of lay three points on you and then I work through them, but I'm not going to do that this morning. What I want to do, it's kind of like an airplane pilot, I want to fly over this whole passage. And uh, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to survey the whole landscape by flying over it pretty quickly. And kind of like the airplane pilot, I'm going to point some things out on the way. You know when the the pilot comes over there, if you uh, turn to your uh, right and look through the window, you'll see Mount Rushmore. You know that kind of experience? Yeah, okay. We're connecting. Good. I don't know if they do that anymore. It's been a long time since I had that in a plane, but it used to be that was a highlight. Uh, you know, you're flying along, and if you look out the window, you know, and you'd see something amazing. Um, so after we've done that big flyover, and I pointed a few things out, what I want to then do is go back and learn some important lessons from the three main characters of this, this whole chapter. Three main characters are Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, and God himself. And we have a lot to learn uh, from these characters in this chapter this morning. So, wheels up, let's jump in. Verse 1 begins with this salutation. Look at it. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. So the first thing I want to point out right out of the gate here is that this whole chapter is a letter. And it's a letter, think about it with me, it's a letter written by King Nebuchadnezzar. He's a pagan. So we have this chapter in the Bible written by a Babylonian pagan king. That's kind of weird. And he's addressing it. This is a letter he's addressing to all the inhabitants of the world, to all peoples, nations, and languages. And so the fact that Nebuchadnezzar wrote this whole chapter does not, please underline that, does not put him on par with sort of like Moses and David and the Apostle Paul, you know, the great biblical authors. That's not what's going on here. Rather, this text is inspired. We're reading it this morning. We're learning from it as God's word this morning. Why? Because the author of Daniel took Nebuchadnezzar's letter and put it in the book of Daniel, and the book of Daniel is in the canon of Scripture. And that's why we read this as God's word this morning. It's got nothing to do with the authorship, the the original authorship, of Nebuchadnezzar has got everything to do with the authorship and the source of the book of Daniel, which he's included Nebuchadnezzar's letter in. So I know that's a technical point, but it does influence how we look at the Bible and how we think about its authority uh, in our lives. So that's the introduction. Verses 2 and 3 um, Nebuchadnezzar nails right up front. He gets right to the point. He gives us the main theme or the main point of his letter right here in verses 2 and 3. Look at it with me. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. Here it is. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to 
to generation. So if we were to kind of pull back a little bit, in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar learned that God revealed, or in, sorry, in chapter 2, that God reveals. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar saw that God rescues. And now here in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar learns and declares that God rules. That's the breakdown of these three chapters. So the big theme in this whole chapter is the God of heaven rules on earth. If you're taking notes, write that down. That's the big theme, the big idea of this whole chapter. The God of heaven rules on earth. And Nebuchadnezzar, as we just saw in verses 2 and 3, he declares this right up at the beginning. He wants us to realize what his thesis is, what his main point is. But if you look at the end of his letter, he reiterates it or amplifies it again. Look at verses 34 and 35. Nebuchadnezzar writes, His, that's God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Exactly what he said in verse 3. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And then, as if we, so we don't miss the point, he punctuates this same point three more times in the main, sort of the main middle section, the main body of his letter in verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32. Here it is. Three times he uses the same statement. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Now let me just point out to you. It's one thing to say this, it's one thing, you know, to read your Bible and have a good theology that says God rules, the God of heaven rules on earth. It's another thing to really know it. It's another thing to really grasp what it means for you. To have a practical understanding of what it means to say that the God of heaven rules on earth. And that's exactly what this chapter is about. This chapter, chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony about how he really learned that the God of heaven rules on earth. It's how he really, it became real and personal to him. We're going to see that. So there's three main sections in this letter that we're going to spend a bit of time on. First of all, the part that Stephen just read for us is the king's dream. Look at verses 4 and 5. Here's how it begins. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. We could talk a lot about that, but we've got to move on. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So here we go. He has a dream. He has a nightmare. And he goes from being Mr. Comfortable to Mr. Fearful. It just his, his comfort evaporates and, and he's gripped by fear. He's alarmed. And we should take from that that here's the most powerful person in the world at the time. And he's just like us. He's, he's fragile and weak just like the rest of us. 
He's set off. He's troubled by this dream. And then we read in verses 6 and 7 that he gathers everybody to himself, the magicians and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans. He calls them all in, including the astrologers, and they all try and interpret the dream, but they can't. Just like we saw back in chapter 2, You know, they just don't have a clue. They don't know how to interpret the king's dream. And then we see in verses 8 and 9 that um, uh, Daniel, Belteshazzar, is called in. And the king says, you know, know, the spirit of the gods is in you. And he's going to take a crack at interpreting the king's dream. And then we come to verses 10 to 12. Nebuchadnezzar describes for Daniel the first part of his dream. And it's a striking imagery of this great tree. He says, The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached into heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And, it, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. I mean, this is amazing. This is a picture of just flourishing and abundance and shade and provision. This amazing imagery. So far, so good. And then the king shares the second half of his dream with Daniel in verses 13 to 16. He says, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, I think an angel, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. And then listen to the change of language. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Now, you have to admit, this part of the dream sounds a little less encouraging. It's kind of a bit foreboding, and I think this is what, you know, troubled the king. And so he's called Daniel in, and that gives us the second half of the second Uh, third of the letter which is the interpretation of the king's dream Daniel is there remember his name is Belteshazzar as well and he hears the king's dream and he is troubled he realizes immediately what the dream is about and the king can read off him that he's troubled he's reluctant to kind of lay the interpretation on the king nobody This is a good sign when you don't love to share bad news with people. And so what happens is the king presses him. The king encourages him. The king says, come on, share the interpretation. And here's what we read in verse 19. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation 
before your enemies. We'll take a closer look at that later on when we uh, tease out some lessons, but that's quite a response. And so then what happens is, is we've seen this a lot in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel just sort of reiterates this whole vision of this great tree in verse 21. He describes it again, and then he identifies who the tree symbolizes in verse 22. He says, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. So Daniel puts the pieces of the puzzle together. He helps, he points to the king and he says, this dream about this great flourishing, uh, fruitful tree that gives everyone uh, shade and food, this tree is you, O king. But then Daniel finishes what the rest of the dream means. He talks about the meaning of this holy one or this angel that has come down and uh, who has announced that the tree is going to be chopped down, leaving that just that stump in the ground. Here's what we read in verses 24 to 26. Daniel says, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, God, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you, from the time that you have known that kingdom that the, sorry that heaven rules so daniel sees this interpretation not as a fait accompli but as a warning for the king daniel begins to move from the interpretation of the dream to apply it to the king look at what he says in verse 27 therefore He's given them the interpretation of the dream. He says, Therefore, O O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, we don't see the whole picture, but Daniel saw what later historians also now sort of piece together for us and help us to learn. Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice guy. Nebuchadnezzar was a ruthless ruler, a, a despot, and he used this brutality and violence to advance his kingdom. He's not a nice guy. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah refers to Nebuchadnezzar as the destroyer of nations. Not a nice title. And Nebuchadnezzar, we know from history that um, he employed armies, vast armies of slave labor. And he used uh, oppression to just sort of impose his will on the kingdom. We saw... uh, two weeks ago how you know if you didn't bow down well he had prepared a a hot furnace for you uh, if you didn't do what he said I mean this was there's no gray areas here 
and his rule his word is law and sometimes at the cost of your life if you didn't cooperate so Daniel knows this about him and yet you know Daniel doesn't berate him. He simply calls him to stop abusing his power, to stop abusing his authority, and to repent and begin to implement social reforms that that treat people with the dignity that they deserve. Why? Because they bear the image of God. That's, that's Daniel's agenda here. He addresses the king respectfully, calls him to repentance, and calls him to implement reforms because people should be treated with dignity and respect. Why? Because they bear the image of God. So that's Daniel's program here. And that brings us to the third main section of the letter, which is the fulfillment of the king's dream. Look at verses 29 and 30. It says, At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now, before we kind of chuckle and roll our eyes at sort of this sort of arrogant and this this boasting of the kings, let me just say that Nebuchadnezzar had some right, I think, to, uh, to be properly proud of himself. I mean, he had established the greatest kingdom uh, of that time. No question. It's a superpower. But not only that, he had overseen the building of the greatest city in the ancient world. I mean, Babylon was hopping. Babylon was massive. It was stretched over thousands of acres. And uh, historians estimate that Babylon perhaps had as many as 200,000 inhabitants. It was the largest city by far in the ancient world. And it was fortified. Nebuchadnezzar had built these, these walls, these fortifications, not one of them, but two sets of them that went all the way around the whole city. And it's said that the walls were so wide they could ride two chariots side by side around the top of the walls. So these are not little walls. They were massive, thick walls, like 50 feet high. That's not all. (laughs) He had built this amazing city. um, And that, that day as he walked out, here's what he might have seen. So he rebuilt the, what was even then in his day, the ancient ziggurat, which might, might have been the Tower of Babel. We don't know. But he rebuilt it. So he looked at sort of the, his refurbishment project and the rebuilding of the ziggurat. But he also would have seen as he walked on his roof that day um, all of these public buildings. And, and one of them, get this, was probably the first museum ever in the world. He built it. He did that idea. Um, what else? He built this amazing bridge over the river Euphrates, which sort of cut through the middle of the city. He built this vast bridge over the, the, the mighty Euphrates. Um, but perhaps what is best known to us 
are the hanging gardens of Babylon. These are known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and he built them for his wife. And they were these incredible gardens that sort of hung over the walls of his palace and around the city. But what I've been most impressed with is I uh, remember years ago um, going to Berlin and seeing this recreation of what's called the Ishtar Gate. If you've ever been to Berlin, I, I, Pergamon Museum, I think, um, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and, and Nebuchadnezzar would have seen not just the Ishtar Gate, but this sort of grand processional roadway that went up, went up to the gate. And it's amazing, all of these sort of blue um, uh, bricks, these glazed bricks, with these symmetrical images, almost lifestyle images of bulls and lions and monsters sort of placed in this really cool pattern all down the walls of this great processional way and all over the face of this 50-foot Ishtar gate, which I uh, remember as a kid just seeing this thing, and it was, my goodness, you know. And it was, I didn't realize it then, but that that's a recreation from what they dug up in ancient Babylon, and it's in the museum in Germany. So he saw all this, and, you know, he was a little impressed with himself. So he brags. But then we come to verse 31 and 32. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And then finally in verse 33 we read, Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So that's our flyover. There's a lot of stuff there. And, 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 and you get this idea of the king's dream and then the interpretation and the fulfillment of it. And it's not a pretty picture. So what can we learn? This is not for us to go and interpret one another's dreams. That's not what Daniel 4 is all about. Remember, Daniel 4 is about remembering that the God of heaven rules on earth. And the question that we need to to ask ourselves is, what can we learn from this passage about how we live on earth under the God of heaven who rules everything, right? So I think there's, there's some important lessons here that we can learn from each of the characters in this chapter. First of all, look at Daniel. I think there's two things that stand out for us uh, from Daniel. First, and this surprises us, there's Daniel's care and concern toward the king. Daniel cares, and he is concerned for King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he's not naive, He knows this man's sins. But Daniel doesn't harbor some sort of secret desire that that Nebuchadnezzar would, you know, be, that he had come to ruin. Look at verse 19. Remember what he says, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. 
See, Daniel isn't secretly um, nursing some sort of desire for the king to, to be ruined and to be overthrown and to die. He's not secretly wishing that he'd get cancer. See, Daniel knows that Nebuchadnezzar is the guy that destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple and took tens of thousands of Israelites into exile in Babylon. Daniel knows all of this, but Daniel doesn't hate him. I would suggest to you that Daniel loves him. And that, for anyone who's read their New Testament, ought to make us think of Jesus. Jesus says to us in Luke 9, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Daniel's an example of exactly what Jesus teaches us as his disciples. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And I think this is very appropriate for us to learn in a culture like ours right now where there's just so much division, there's so much acrimony, there's so much contention, particularly in the political realm and in social media. And I think the lesson for us from Daniel is that we mustn't demonize and vilify and condemn and attack, whether it's politicians or people that we simply disagree with. I've said this before, and I'm saying it again because I read Christian social media, and I'm ashamed we seem to have picked up the the nomenclature of the world. And Daniel, sitting here as an example, he's not naive. He knows what this guy is like, but he doesn't address him the way our social media culture addresses bad guys. It's remarkable, his level of respect. And I think we just... We mustn't secretly, you know, kind of wring our hands when someone, even if we disagree with them, we think their ideas are wrong. We might even think that their ideas are dangerous. But we, we mustn't sort of secretly uh, nurse this grudge against them and wring our hands when they fail. That's not Daniel's attitude. I think Daniel is really in the spirit of, of Jeremiah 29, that he sincerely desires the welfare of his neighbor no matter their political ideology. That's a lesson we can learn. Listen to 1 Timothy 2.1. Here's Paul writing to Timothy at the time of the Roman Empire, um, bringing some, some serious opposition to Christians. And here's what Paul writes to Timothy. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. First lesson. Consider his care and his concern for the king. Second lesson. Look at his courage to offer wise counsel. Desiring our neighbor's good, desiring, looking for our neighbor's welfare does not mean we have to always agree with them. Daniel had the courage to offer the king very wise counsel. Look at verse 27. 
O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Here it is. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be lengthening of your prosperity. It is not loving to withhold the truth from people. Love speaks the truth, not with an attitude, not to attack, but love risks, love is courageous enough to give people that we may disagree with wise counsel, whether they receive it or not. He calls him to turn from his sin. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know anything about what God had revealed to Israel about sin and the Ten Commandments. But the basis for calling Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his sin and enact social reforms was this common idea that they bear the image of God. Whether or not Nebuchadnezzar knows that or not, all people everywhere are created in God's image. And that is the basis by which we can speak to anyone and everyone and offer wise counsel from God's word because whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they know it or not, everyone bears the image of God and they're accountable to God. I love Daniel. Daniel's a great example for us of not being afraid to speak truth to power. Why? Because truth matters a lot more than power does. And we've got to be courageous. A council can't be cutting or combative or condemning or disrespectful, but we must When we've been given the opportunity, we must speak about responsibility, righteousness, and the coming judgment of God. So those are a couple of lessons from Daniel. Three lessons we learn from Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I think the first lesson we learn from Nebuchadnezzar is the most obvious lesson, and that is God opposes the proud. That's the obvious lesson here. God opposes the proud. Listen, God opposes pride because pride opposes God. That's the lesson here. See, pride is this demonic denial that the God of heaven rules on earth. That's what pride is. It's this denial that the God of heaven, the God who made all things, the God who upholds all things, rules on earth. So I think we're meant to read Daniel 4 as sort of a cautionary tale. It, it, it speaks to us uh, not to be like Nebuchadnezzar, although I think uh, all of us in certain cir- circumstances and certain situations can be like Nebuchadnezzar. We've all, haven't we, patted ourselves on the back. We've all boasted in our accomplishments. Whether we've said it out loud to others or not, we've all kind of done what Nebuchadnezzar does. Boasting in our achievements. Boasting in our job. Boasting in our family. Boasting in our intellect or our income or where we've been or who we know or what we own or where we live. I mean, again, just just read social media. Now, the problem with Nebuchadnezzar, and I think our problem too, and this is important, is that we, we, we honestly believe that our achievements are our achievements. 
Let me disavow you of that <laughs> because you're wrong. Our achievements are not our achievements. Everything, and I mean absolutely everything we have, um, our families, our health, our strength, our intellect, our capacities, our uh, friendships, our job. I could go on and on and on. Everything we have is a gift. Is a gift given us by God, by a gracious God. Paul asks, what do you have that you have not received? And it's a rhetorical question because the answer is nothing. And so our posture needs to change completely. For some of us, it's a 180 degree difference. Completely, complete change of mind in the way you think about yourself and who you are and what you do and what you've accomplished. It's all gift, all of it. Realizing this is, is really simply realizing what it means to be a human being. We do not originate from ourselves. <laughs> we are finite, dependent, contingent beings. And realizing that we have nothing from and through and for ourselves is simply to recognize what it means to be a human being. Christopher Wright says, Nebuchadnezzar had delusions of being more than human, so with a kind of poetic justice, God sent him delusions of being less than human. See, that's the problem of pride. The problem of pride is that rather than find our true humanity in proper submission to God, we raise ourselves in opposition to God and then we lose our true humanity. That's the problem of pride. Pride robs us of our true humanity because we are living in opposition to the only one who makes our humanity meaningful. It's interesting how if you look at proud people, the underside of pride is always fear and anxiety. There's always a dark underside to pride. Because when anything scrapes the surface, there's this, there's this desire for control. And sooner or later, we learn that we can't control and become very fearful, very anxious, very quickly. Here's the second lesson we learned from Nebuchadnezzar. This is a hard one, but it's very simple. We can either humble ourselves or we can wait for God to humble us. I, I would recommend the former. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And 1 Peter 5.6 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So we're coming to the end here, but what I want to do is give you a couple of, a couple of thoughts about how we can pursue humility. Because pride is the sin under all of our sin. And we need to pursue humility. So let's just let me share a few uh, points. If, if we're going to be a people that are pleasing to God, we've got to pursue humility. Here's a few points. Cultivate a growing appreciation for the glory and greatness of God. Pride grows, pride takes root in shallow views of God. See, because when God is small, guess who's big? 
the big me. But if God is big, we see ourselves in proper relation to who He is. And that's called humility. Secondly, focus, focus, focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ, particularly His crucifixion for your sins. The cross has this wonderful leveling effect on all people who really dwell at the foot of it. When we see that it took the death of the Son of God to redeem me, to reconcile me to my Father, it's pretty hard to get up and be full of yourself. Humility is found at the foot of the cross. And yet it's a humility who, that is not ever without hope. Thirdly, and this is hard, invite honest input from other people. Uh, maybe ask your spouse for honest input. Um, some of our marriage relationships, there's kind of doors in the room of your relationship that are marked, you know, it's got like a police tape, or maybe you've even just walled over the whole door and you're pretending it's a wall. You know, do not enter, don't knock on that door, nobody's allowed in here. And I would encourage you to ask honest input from other people who know you well. Ask your spouse. Ask your kids. That's scary. In what way could I be a better parent? You know, the kid whips out this, like, do a tang and starts rattling things off to you. Um, ask your kids. Ask your good friends, people that know the Bible, people that understand the heart. Ask your pastor. Don't think that there are not some thoughts. <laughs> And I'm sure you have some towards me, and I would welcome them. I really would. Ask people for honest input. Fourth, be teachable. Be teachable. Don't think that you know it all. And be teachable from people that maybe have a quite a different perspective than you. Don't be naive. Be critical. Be discerning. But be teachable. Be prepared to listen to anybody. That's boy, oh boy. I listen a lot to TED Talks. And I must say, when... You know, if they're talking about practical things, I'm all ears. But when they start talking about big questions, I, I really begin to tune out. But I force myself to listen because sometimes there's an insight there. I, I want to be a teachable person. I just don't want to live in an echo chamber of people that only ever and always agree with me. That's, that's a bad place to be. Uh, five, stop blaming others for your problems. Pride always does that. Pride always shifts the blame. It's my problems, my circumstances, it's this, it's that. Take responsibility for your life. Take responsibility for your problems. Number six, take a sincere interest in others. Pride, proud people can never shut up talking about themselves. Take a sincere interest in others. That's a great way to kill pride. Start asking uh, other people questions and show a sh sincere interest in life. Listen. Take time to listen. And don't be just thinking about, well, what's the next thing I can say when that person finishes saying what they're said? Listen. Actively listen. Take an interest. Um, seven. Ask others for forgiveness. Don't just say, I'm sorry. That's a way of taking responsibility. And finally, pray. Pray for yourself often but also enlist the prayer of others for you. 
Um, again, I'm, I'm, I've mentioned this from the pulpit here. I'm very thankful for a group of guys I meet with most weeks. And uh, we never leave those meetings on Saturday mornings without taking time to pray for each other. Often after somebody has really borne their heart out to the rest of the group and received counsel. And uh, sometimes it's just a call to repent, you know. But I don't know where I'd be without feeling connected to other people who know me well, share my burden, call me out, tell me what I need to hear, not what I just want to hear, and then who are willing to pray with me. Boy, I'm running out of time. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to skip that lesson. We've got two more lessons uh, to learn, and they're from God. First of all, I love this passage. God is patient in this passage. Um, God is not in a rush to lower the boom on anyone. God is is patient. God is slow to anchor, Exodus says. And so he gives Nebuchadnezzar a year to repent and change. God wants to see our humility. He does not delight in our humiliation. God is for us. And second, the other thing we learn from God here The picture of God that we get in Daniel 4, it is accurate. It's just not complete. It's accurate. It's just not complete. Because God is not simply the Most High who rules over the kingdom of men. There are many Old Testament passages we could look at to sort of fill out a more complete picture of God and what he's like. But it's really through the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament that we get the fullest picture of what God is really like. Here's what we could say. If Daniel 4 is about the proud king that God humbled, the New Testament is about the humble king that God exalted. That's a way to think about the relationship here. Daniel 4 is about the proud king that God humbled, and the New Testament is about the humble king that God exalted. And and the, the passage that ought to come to our mind when we think of a statement like that is Philippians 2. I love this passage, and I want to close uh, with you this morning by reading it. In Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8, we read, Though Jesus Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't try and hang on to it, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility is beautiful, my friends, because humility is an expression of God's own character. And it's seen most fully. Humility is seen most fully in the incarnation and in the crucifixion of God's own Son. See, God does not require something of Nebuchadnezzar that he is not willing to do himself. doesn't require anything of any of us that he has not fully accomplished already through the person of his Son. Then look at verses 9 to 11. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why did God humble Nebuchadnezzar? Because he wouldn't bow the knee. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar because he wouldn't bow the knee to the God of heaven who rules on earth. Well, what does the God of heaven who rules on earth look like? It looks like Jesus Christ. It looks like God laying aside his glory and eternity with his Father. God the Son coming in to share our humanity. Not just our humanity, but our humanity as a servant who dies for us, who dies for our sin on the cross. Utter humiliation. And because of that, God has exalted him. God raised him from the, God, from the dead. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high with all authority in heaven and on earth. And having died for us, it is unthinkable. It is, it is madness not to bend the knee not to confess his lordship, not to love him, treasure him, worship him, trust him, and follow him. It's madness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would make us a humble people who freely, joyfully submit ourselves to you, submit ourselves to your son, and find in our humility our full humanity. Father, grant us to be a people who pursue this right understanding of ourselves in relation to who you are. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.